when I was a kid uh, growing up in a public school, the first thing we would do every day was stand next to our desks, put our hands on our hearts and say what? Right, the Pledge of Allegiance. I did a little Googling and, and found out that the first version of the pledge was written as part of a marketing campaign for schools to mark the Columbian Exposition of 1892. The program included sending schools American flags, pictures of George Washington, and the original version of the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, outside of that tradition, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, we might not think of the idea of allegiance very often. But we do pledge our allegiance in a number of ways. For example, uh, most of us recognize our brand loyalty when it comes to products we buy, like a smartphone. You're either an Apple person or an Android person, right? And when you need a new phone, you don't usually think about switching brands because you are loyal to the brand you love. We also give our allegiance to certain restaurants. There may be dozens of restaurants within a quick drive or even within walking distance of where you live, but how often do you pick the same restaurant over and over again? Uh, anybody do this? And uh, many of us, when we go to that same restaurant, we order the same entree over and over again. Uh, my current restaurant of choice on the north side of Chicago is called The Hen for breakfast. It used to be called The Stray Hen. I guess they found her and now it's just called The Hen. And of course, many of us give our allegiance to sports teams. Around here, when it comes to baseball, you're someone who truly loves Chicago's team, the Cubs, or you're a Sox fan. You don't switch back and forth. Allegiance plays a big role in our lives. And I bring that up because over these next four weeks, we're going to learn what it means to live out an authentic allegiance to Jesus. We're going to study the book of Philippians together. And what we talk about here will be reinforced to the community daily, Monday through Friday. If you haven't signed up for the daily devotional, I encourage you to do that for this series especially. The book of Philippians is actually a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in a city called Philippi. And the book of Acts, a history of the early church written by the doctor and historian Luke, we're told that Paul had a vision of a man in the district of Macedonia asking him for help. And Paul believed that this vision was telling him he was to go and share the good news of Jesus with the people in that region. You see, Philippi was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. And as a Roman colony, the citizens of Philippi were expected to adopt the customs, values, and practices of the Roman Empire. Scholar N.T. Wright comments, the Philippian colonists were proud of being Romans and would do their best to order their civic life so that it matched the way things were done in Rome. The most recent innovation down that line was, of course, the establishment of the imperial cult. Caesar, the emperor, was to be worshipped as savior and lord. So, when Paul began sharing the good news that Jesus is king and inviting people to live as Jesus' kingdom community, his message faced strong resistance from those who were loyal to Rome. It'd be a little like, you know, someone dressed in a White Sox uniform walking into Wrigley Field and trying to convince fans to switch teams. Paul was calling people to citizenship in a different kingdom. And people had to make a choice to decide if their ultimate allegiance was going to be the Roman emperor or if it was going to be to Jesus. Whether they would follow the Roman way or the kingdom way. You see, I believe allegiance Allegiance may be the best word to describe what it meant for them and what it means for us to declare our faith 
in Jesus. You know, often when we use the word faith, we think of a sort of kind of cognitive agreement. And so we might say, I have faith that God exists, or I have faith that Jesus died and rose again. And the New Testament contains examples where faith means believing that something is true or real. However, the original word for faith in the New Testament is pistis, pistis. And it has a, a much broader range of meaning than cognitive agreement. While it can mean believing something to be true, it can also mean fidelity, faithfulness, commitment, and pledged loyalty. And while faith in Jesus certainly includes agreeing that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins, putting your faith in him goes way beyond just merely believing that truth. I mean, after all, James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us that even demons believe truths about God. You see, faith in Jesus actually includes um, devotion to him, a commitment to him, a pledged loyalty to Jesus and Jesus alone. It means following his teachings, imitating his ways, saying yes to following Jesus means giving our full allegiance to him as king. And when Paul shared the good news about Jesus to the people in Philippi, some of them decided to switch their allegiance to Jesus. And that's how the church at Philippi was born. And then later on, while he was in prison, you see, Paul writes this letter to this church in Philippi to thank them for the gifts they sent to take care of his needs, but also to encourage and strengthen them. You see, he knew that every day they faced a battle for their allegiance, and he wanted to make sure they stayed faithful to Jesus. And see, that's why this book of Philippians is so relevant to us today, because see, every day we face a battle for our allegiance. Our allegiance to the person of Jesus over any other person, to Jesus over job or career, to Jesus over comfort and pleasure. And it's an allegiance to Jesus' kingdom over any country, its flag or political party. It's an allegiance to Jesus' kingdom over wealth and the pursuit of success and happiness. It's an allegiance to Jesus' kingdom over any other kingdom. While we are alive and breathing, we face a battle for our allegiance. And Paul wants to encourage us to stay faithful to Jesus. Now, Paul's letter starts with this greeting in verses one and two. So let's pick it up. Chapter one, verse one and two. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, Paul describes himself and Timothy as what? Servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. And, and to understand the force of that word servant, it's important that we understand what that word meant in Paul's day. A servant in Paul's day was a person who was legally owned by someone else and had no freedom apart from what the owner allowed. And, and usually a person found themselves in that situation because they'd become indebted to another person and had to live as a servant as a way to pay off the debt. No one would choose to be a servant. But in that day, many people were as a way to survive. But you see, Paul willingly calls himself a servant of Jesus. He views himself as someone indebted to Jesus for his very existence. He no longer saw his life as belonging to himself. He belonged to King Jesus. And so it makes me wonder, have we surrendered our lives to Jesus in the same way? 
Have we surrendered our lives to Jesus in this same way? It's easy to pledge our allegiance to Jesus, you know, as long as we can still hold on to parts of our lives, right? I mean, we say, hey, I belong to you, Jesus, but I'm still going to run point when it comes to my job or my career. Or, or I will follow you, Jesus, but, you know, I'll need some time before uh, my allegiance is reflected in my finances. Or, or I'm yours, Jesus, but, you know, what I do in this one relationship over here, well, that, that's, that's just going to be between us. So let me ask you, what are you unwilling to surrender in order to serve your king and his kingdom? What are you unwilling to surrender in order to serve your king and his kingdom? For me, see, I want to follow Jesus. I really do. And yet I have to admit, there are parts of my life that tend to remain under the reign of me and the kingdom of John. I mean, I'm all about declaring my allegiance to Jesus until it means giving up some of the stuff that I like or until living under his rule means I got to sacrifice what I have so others can live a better life or maybe find their way back to God. I'm willing to serve him, but if I'm honest, in some areas, it's still on my terms and not on his. But Paul, see, Paul viewed himself as a servant of Jesus, he recognized his life was no longer his own. He held nothing back. He'd given his full allegiance to Jesus. So let me ask, what would it mean for you to give your full allegiance to Jesus? What would you need to surrender? What territory in your life still remains under the rule of your kingdom? and not Jesus' kingdom. Paul picks up steam, and he describes how he's been praying for the Philippians. We pick it up at verse three. Follow along with me. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, from the start of this letter, there are two key ideas Paul really wants the Philippians to understand. First, Paul wants them to understand just how deep his love is for them. I mean, Paul just loves these people. I mean, the mere thought of them brings him joy. Do you have any of those kind of people in your life? Uh, pe people who, just the thought of them brings you joy? Uh, my kids are 23 and 25. My daughter is 23 and my son 25. And and I still feel that way when I think about them. They live in New York, way, way too far away. But you know, even as I was working on this talk, my daughter Chloe was, was texting me. And I, and I love that. I love hearing from them. And I can't wait until the next time we will be together in person because they bring me joy. And see, Paul had those same feelings. That's what he says he feels about this community of people in Philippi. And then secondly, Paul wants this church to know that he is confident God is going to complete every good work that he started in them. And no matter what kind of hardships this community faces, Paul is reassuring them, God will see them through. You know, I, I like to run. And this time of year, it's, it's fun to run along the lakefront in the city. And when I'm running along the lake, I often see people wearing finisher t-shirts. Ever see those finisher t-shirts? They're uh, t-shirts people get after completing a particular race. And usually these t-shirts are from longer runs, like a half a marathon or a full marathon. Um, you don't usually see t-shirts that say, I finished the one mile fun run. 
Paul is saying here that if you maintain your allegiance to Jesus, if you stay true to him over the long haul, he's gonna complete the good work he began in you because God is a finisher of what he starts. Again, from N.T. Wright, the confidence Paul has throughout this letter is that God himself is a finisher as well as a beginner. The particular work which he has begun and will finish is the work of grace through the gospel in the hearts and lives of the Philippian Christians. And verse six here, folks, it serves as kind of a, a motto or theme for the letter. Our God who began a good work in you will complete that work. And that is great news, isn't it? Think about it. God is not just a beginner. He is a finisher. I know we all experience times of disappointment, discouragement. I mean, maybe even right now, you just don't feel like you're as far along as you hoped you would be by now. I get that. I feel that way. I can't believe how unfinished I am in certain areas. I thought I'd be way beyond some of this by now. But here Paul reassures us that God is going to complete the good work that he has started in you and in me and in all of us together. So don't lose hope. He is gonna get us there. And remember, Paul writes this letter from prison. He's saying all this chained to a guard in house arrest as he prepares for trial. I mean, you know he had to be asking, God, is this it? Are you done with me? Is my life gonna end this way with so much unfinished? He had to have his moments of questioning, you know, doubting what God was doing. And so it only seemed natural for him to be at least a little shaky and unsure when it comes to his allegiances. But in the midst of all that, look what Paul says. I mean, this is truly remarkable. Okay, starting at verse 12, follow along with me. He writes, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. All this tough stuff he's facing is advancing the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to, to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. God has done such a remarkable work in Paul that he even sees something as horrible as prison as an opportunity for God's good work. He sees uh, the Jesus kingdom advancing, not in spite of his circumstances, but through them. And as it advances through Paul, it emboldens other Christ followers even more. And there may be no truer test of your allegiance than when your very life is on the line for a cause. I think we would all agree that. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three young men who were willing to face a fiery furnace for their allegiance to God. Paul knows that maintaining his allegiance to Jesus may cost him his life. And in one of the most daring and moving verses in all of scripture, he says this, Verses 20 and 21. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How does Paul respond when his allegiance is tested? 
when death itself is knocking on his door, Paul declares, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if you were to read this sentence in its original language, the verb is isn't even there. So Paul's words, uh, they read like a, a death-defying declaration. To live Christ, to die gain. That's a death-defying declaration of allegiance to King Jesus. To live Christ, Paul says, Everything about my life is centered on Jesus and his kingdom. Every breath I breathe, every prayer I pray, and every move I make is for Jesus. To live Christ and to die gain. What does that even mean? Well, if all of life is for Jesus, then death can only be seen as an advantage. For in death, Paul knows he will see Jesus face to face. I mentioned this at our Lincoln Park location a couple of weeks ago. I recently led the memorial service for a family friend. He was diagnosed with cancer just a couple of months ago, 49 years old, so young, so soon. But he made this comment in a text to his sister just days before he died. He said, I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid to die. I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid to die. He wasn't afraid to die because he knew what was coming. To die gain. How might our lives be different if our allegiance to God meant he could do the same work in us that he was doing in Paul, where even in the midst of the worst of circumstances, facing death itself, we could say, to live Christ, but to die, gain. I've asked your local teaching pastor to share a personal experience of what this means to them, to live Christ, to die, gain, and then to walk us through the rest of chapter one. Well, good morning, Community Lincoln Park. For those who don't know me, my name is John Prime. I'm the pastor here, and uh, I found this to be quite a heavy and yet wonderfully important set up to reflect upon as we lean into Philippians together, as we examine our allegiances together. I, I think particularly there's an urgency. I felt these last few months of moving back here to the city, I don't know if you feel this urgency too, around faith and allegiance. I've just sensed since, since COVID, since our world sort of went into lockdown and has emerged because of all the cultural changes, it feels like faith is pressed in from all sides. It feels like there are people in my life who are deconstructing. There are people in my life who are discouraged. There are people in my life who are disillusioned. And so to have this vision, this invitation, this declaration from Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain feels like a question that presses in on my very own heart, my very own story, and caused me to go back and think about those I have known who have died. And so forgive me that uh, this, this might get just a little personal, a little bit heavy, but I hope that's what we're here for. I think you'll enjoy this. And yet um, I honestly have tried to go through this a number of times in preparing and yet have found that uh, I probably need to read this just to make sure I can get through the emotionality of it. So if you'll uh, enter into this moment with me, here we go. 
uh, as I reflected on to live as Christ to die as gain, this may sound morbid, but I have always been fascinated with death. <laughs> if you think about it, death is the great obstacle to our modern world. We have no good answers to death. We spend all our time, all our days, trying to avoid the thought of death. We pretend death doesn't exist. We use products to appear younger. We use surgeries to repair bodies that are breaking down and yet relentlessly, inevitably, uncomfortably, whether death is going to happen next week or next year or 30 years or 50 years from now, eventually every single one of us will die. You will die. I will die. And yet for how present and inevitable death is, we really hate culturally to talk about death, don't we? It feels uncomfortable even now, as I just told you that I soon will die. Uh, I think... I think that's why Jenna, my wife, and I were so moved in our early 20s to discover this novel called The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. I'm sure some of you may have read it or some of you have seen the movie. It tells the story of a teenager diagnosed with cancer who, although she's lived longer than anyone thought, has to wake up each day with the courage and despair of what it means that at any moment she will soon die. The story is actually quite extraordinary because more than anyone else, this teenage girl truly faced into her own death. At the start of the book, she's hilariously cynical. She's bitingly humorous. She rolls her eyes when her mother attempts to beautify her. She says, what's the point, Mom? I'm going to die soon anyways. She refuses the guidance counselor's suggestions that things could get better. Um, no, they're not going to get better. I have cancer. I'm going to die. But the thing that disturbs her most is that she discovers another cancer survivor, a teenage boy, who begins to fall in love with her. And the more he loves her, the more she starts to love him, and she's terrified because she hates how she knows that love is going to end. She hates that every day falling more in love is this risk. Like, if she loves more, then it's going to hurt him more. It's going to hurt everyone more when she's gone, and she can't stand how much her existence is hurting everyone, and yet slowly, surely, she begins to see that people want to hurt, to be in love with her, even if that means that one day she is going to be gone. I think John Green is leaning into something important here, something that C.S. Lewis once said, which is that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one and nothing, not even an animal. I think that is our great temptation, the threat in our cultural moment. If we live for ourselves, if we just wrap ourselves up within ourselves, consume only what is pleasurable, protect only what we can receive, then maybe we can be safe. And yet, friends, this morning, as you think about your allegiances, if there is Christ— if Christ is the one who offered himself broken, that you and I could be made whole, if Christ offered himself to death in order that we could be carried into life, then we could become the courageous few who stare into our own deaths in order that we could be freed to love, trusting in the new life that Christ will bring us. We can be vulnerable, in this great dark void, because we have seen an even greater light. 
and know that when our end comes, we will be carried home into Christ. One of the reasons why I think this book mattered so much to me in my 20s was that it came shortly after one of my close teenage friends, Ethan Mills, had died of cancer. He'd had cancer as a boy, and when I met him in high school, he had always said, if you can forgive my French, that he had kicked cancer's ass. He was joyful, the class clown, outrageous at every turn, sometimes goofy, most of the time hilarious, and like any teenage friend, he often drove me crazy. But we were part of this good group of guys who were just close friends. We had each other's back, and Ethan was a Christian. As I was preparing to move away to Chicago for college, I heard unexpectedly that the cancer had returned. And of course, everyone rallied around to help him fight it. He went through treatments. Recovery looked promising. In fact, my whole first year of college went by and it looked like it was going to be just another fight until all of a sudden it turned bad fast. And I wasn't really there for it, but there were prayer vigils. There was a lot of money that was raised, experimental procedures that were tried. And I had plans to come home for the summer break when I got there, I heard he didn't have long. So I'll never forget going over to his house where he was just comfortably laid down on his bed, breathing slowly, all the tubes were in, and I was told this was my chance to say goodbye. And I was 19, <laughs> and I just knew or felt how unfair it was that I had this whole life ahead of me and that he, at the same age, who had so much to give, didn't have any time left at all. Yet the most remarkable thing to me, as I kneeled by his bed, was the smile that he gave me. He told me that he loved me. He told me that he wasn't really scared. And as I told him about school, and my dreams to marry Jenna, and this training I was in to be a pastor, and all of the hopes and plans I had for my future, I remember he just held my hand, and at one point he smiled again, and he whispered, I'm so happy for you, John. For Ethan, what I saw in that moment was that to live was Christ, and to die was gain. As you may have noticed this whole time as I talked about that John Green novel. I never mentioned the name of the character in the book. As Jen and I were reading this book, The Faults in Our Stars, and we were weeping and pondering how something seemingly so cruel like death, unexpected death, could be so courageously resisted with love and a hope for new life in Jesus, we pondered this character whose name in The Faults in Our Stars was Hazel. Hazel Grace Lancaster. And so Jen and I Seven years later, as we'd go to have our own first child, not only wanted to honor Ethan and the many others whose deaths seemed so cruelly unexpected, but even more, we wanted to honor the resilient, defiant joy that comes from embracing Christ. And so, we named our daughter, if you haven't met her yet, Hazel, Hazel Joy. The book of Philippians is going to end with this beautiful call, where if uh, we have up on the screens Philippians 1, 27 to 28, Paul's going to say, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. C can you imagine if we, as the church, leaned into this kind of vision and invitation? 
a death-defying allegiance, that to live is Christ because to die is gain. Paul says, I know in my absence that you're going to stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened by any of those who oppose you. Do you see this longing there in the scriptures, why this book of Philippians matters so much for us as a community? Do you see the hopeful possibility if you and I together were to actually lean into this faith, this allegiance in Jesus? I'm telling you that our culture would notice that we are those who are freed from the fear of death. We are those who are freed to risk in love. And so I want to close by just encouraging you, if you haven't yet, to lean in with us to this U plus invitation. This U plus invitation into taking a step closer to God, taking a step into the church, taking a step into serving with us the world and the city around us. Uh, there's a couple of just practical encouragements. And I realize these feel so small in light of talking so heavily about death, and yet see the connection here that the more we lean into the scriptures together, if you read Philippians with us, we've got lots of information online. There's an app called the Community Daily. It's a wonderful chance for you to just have your heart be washed over and over and over again by these words, to begin forming your mind and your imagination around this vision that Paul has for us. Uh, we also gather regularly in small groups. We're about to pick all our small groups back up again. We'd love to discuss with you wrestle with you what it means to be this kind of community, to live this kind of allegiance to Jesus right here in our city. And finally, as a church, we just want to follow Jesus by loving the city. We're wrestling already with new ways that we can expand our partnerships. There's a great uh, community service opportunity over with the Lincoln Park Community Service Center. We're going to have dates to be able to send you all, but this is what it looks like to follow an allegiance to Jesus. As Paul said, to live becomes Christ, and if your living is for Christ, then to die surely is gain. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we turn to a time of communion. Heavenly Father, we know that death is heavy. We know that death is the great threat that we try relentlessly to avoid. It is the enemy that we try not to look in the eye, Lord. The fear of death lingers over us as the avoidance of death permeates our culture. And yet, Jesus, you, you were the one who stared into the face of death. You chose to die so that we might live. Lord, I pray even now this morning that our community would be one of complete and utter allegiance to you. And in the same way there was that temptation, Lord, to worship Caesar, and yet the church said that you instead are Lord. Jesus, may we press against all other threats, grabbing at our allegiances, and may we hold relentlessly onto you and to the gift of your love so that we too can risk everything with our loves. We lift this up to you, Lord. In your name, amen.